Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's episode, I talk to Angelina Kalahari about Namibia in Southwest Africa. So we recorded the interview a few months back as I tend to batch my interviews and so it was well before the coronavirus changed our perspective on world travel. But perhaps in difficult times it's good to hear about interesting places and people and travel in our imaginations. Those of us with wanderlust are staying indoors under lockdown right now and I must admit to sitting down with my photo albums the other night looking at past travels and wondering at how much I have taken for granted. Angelina is wonderfully enthusiastic about her beloved Namibia, a country that I have dreamed of ever since I first heard about the Skeleton Coast, I think from Clive Cussler in the book of the same name. We talk about the landscape and how the deserts and ocean shore shape the country, as well as its history with Germany and how that has impacted the people who live there. I hope you enjoy the interview with Angelina. Angelina Kalahari is the author of Under a Namibian Sky, as well as other novels and non-fiction books about voice. A former operatic soprano, professional actress and stage director, Angelina was born in Namibia and now lives in London. Welcome, Angelina. Hi, it's lovely to see you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, it's I great to have you. about Namibia. <laughs> oh, it is great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about your background and also your travel background, because you've moved around a lot. I have, yes. Well, so I was born in Namibia on a farm which is probably the best place in the world to be born <laughs> because it's wide open spaces and, you know, skies and warm people and exotic animals. Um, and I, I was one of those people who I got to play with um, Bushman children and learn survival skills. Um, so that was good. Um, <clears throat> and then eventually I went to Cape Town um, to school um, and to Cape Town University. And you're right, I worked as an operatic soprano for most of my life. I did train in theatre and as an actress and stage director as well, and I did use those skills eventually. But first and foremost, I sang, and I did travel all over the world. I was so lucky. I sang in the most amazing venues you can think of. Um, I won't bore you with the details because there's lots and lots of countries I can talk about. Um, but we want to talk about Namibia, don't we? Um, but I will briefly say that I lived in Hong Kong for eight years. And that allowed me to also travel in the Orient um, and to places I would never, ever have gone hadn't I lived in, in Hong Kong, if you see what I mean. So that was amazing. Um so that's kind of my background. Um, sort of, it was mostly work related, my travel. Um, I love traveling for holidays, um, but it's quite difficult when 
at that time, you know, working, working, working. Because I'm sure people realize that when you're performing, <laughs> there's only so much energy you have. And although I often tried to stay behind, you know, take a few days and stay behind after a show, <clears throat> excuse me, it, um, I didn't get to do all the touristy things as much as I wanted to. I tried and I did lots of it. I took loads of photos and I have amazing memories. Um, but still my favorite places to visit is Namibia when I get a chance. Um, I love going to Cape Town. I love Venice with a passion. <laughs> I've done a couple of uh, episodes on Venice, actually. Um, but, and then when did you move to London? Oh, many, many years ago, but I didn't stay here. So I moved here, I think, 1985. That gives you an idea how old I am. Um, and, but then I didn't stay here all the time. It was my base, but I moved and lived in other countries and then moved back and moved other countries and moved back. I think I've finished moving now. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Oh, well, we will we will circle back to that idea. Um, but let's start with coming back to Namibia. So a lot of people might not know where Namibia is. So can you sort of explain where it is and some of the main regions and cities so people get orientated? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I have to say Namibia is three times the size of England, of the UK, mm. just so people know kind of how big it is. But it only has a few million people living there. So it is empty. <laughs> um, it is south of Angola, um, west of Botswana, and north of South Africa. And its eastern coast is the sea. It's the Atlantic Ocean. The Western Coast. I mean, the Western Coast. What did I say? Eastern. <laughs> I mean, Western Coast is, is um, yeah, the Atlantic Ocean. So it's very cold. Uh, you can't swim there, but people do. I think they're nuts. But yeah, so that's kind of where it is. The capital city is Ventuk, and it's sort of in the middle of the country um, geographically. And then you have bigger towns. Vintuk is actually the only city in the country. There are no other cities. There are bigger towns, but they are small. Um, I mean, Vintuk itself is a tiny, tiny city, much, much smaller than even Cape Town, if you've been there. Um, so bigger uh, towns would be Kipmanshoop, which is in the south. Um, and then you get Swakopmund and Wolfish Bay, um, in the west and Tumap in the north and Hubabas in the east. Um, so I think Wolfish Bay is still the sort of the main port area at the moment. Yeah. Mm. So that's kind of where it is. And those are sort of the biggest towns that you can go to. Um, but like I said, it's quite spread out. I mean, you can travel for miles and miles and hours and hours and not see another person or another car. <laughs> and it's, it is interesting because, um, oh, actually, I'm going to ask you about the language now because uh, mm -hmm. the uh, windhook, which mm -hmm. I was pronouncing as it's spelt windhook, um, <laughs> you know, because the V and the W. So what's the language yeah. background? Is it Afrikaans like um, South Africa or wh what is that language background? Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of an amalgamation of lots of different languages. Um, as you probably know, it used to be a German colony. Um, in the 1800s, 
for a long period of time. So a lot of the words are German, actually. But there's also a lot of um, Bushman words, um, Nama words, um, all kinds. of. There's about 12 main tribes um, and there's about 30 languages spoken in the country altogether. I mean, there's lots of different little tiny you know, um, dialects and stuff, but uh, around about that. But yes, so um, so Afrikaans is one of them and English. But yes, so it's mostly German and Afrikaans, I would say, mm. um, are the sort of worthy official languages for a long, long time. Mm. Yeah. And then you mentioned the uh, vast spaces and that, you know, you can go without seeing people. So part of the, uh, in my head, uh, the, is the desert. And you have Under a Namibian Sky as part of the Desert Love series. So clearly you yeah. love the desert. So tell us about That's the true. desert in Namibia. Yeah, the desert is astonishing. Um, I mean, there are actually, well, here's the thing. Most of the country is desert or semi-desert. So you have the Nama Desert, which is on, on the sort of west coast, but it's almost all of that side is either the Nama Desert and then it goes into the Skeleton Coast. And then on the other side, you have the Kalahari Desert, which is not really a desert in, this, in the true sense of being a desert because it has rainfall and it has um, vegetation. Um, and when it rains, the smell is amazing. But so to get back to the Namib Desert, that is the oldest, driest desert in the world. Um, and they sort of think it's between 50 and 80 million years old, you can imagine, right? And it looks dead. It looks like nothing grows there, nothing happens there. But actually, it's full of life. There's a lot of life there. So if you are patient, you can see it. There's insects, obviously, and lizards and birds and lots of animals. And if you are patient and you wait, you will see them. So you will see the chemsbok and springbok and kudu and giraffes. And if you're very lucky, you'll see elephants. And if you're very, very lucky, you'll see uh, lions. Yeah. But the desert is amazing because it is vast, yes. Um, it's red. The dunes are sort of a orange red, and it always makes me wonder if Mars looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> because there are other parts in, in Namibia that people call moon landscape. So, yeah, but that's something else. But, yeah, so the, the desert is sand. Most of it is sand. There are rocky parts, but very little. It's mostly sand. The dunes are enormous. You can climb them, but I don't know if you've ever tried climbing. It's very hard work climbing <laughs> a dune. It's like, oh, my Lord, you have to be really fit. It's much easier coming down because you can slide down, which you can't do with a normal mountain. But, um, yeah, so it's silence. The silence is the thing that hits you the most. It's profound. It stills your soul. It puts things into perspective. It makes you feel small and big at the same time. Um, the sunsets in the desert is like nothing you've ever seen before, really. And I've traveled the world. I can honestly tell you the sunsets there are amazing, absolutely amazing. And because there's no light pollution at night, you see the sort of swathe of the Milky Way in a way that you can't see anywhere else. 
and the moon. I know the moon isn't bigger anywhere else, but it looks enormous. It fills the sky. It feels like you can just touch it, especially when it's full moon. It's incredible. So to me, the desert is the place of my soul. I will always return there. And when things get really tough, I take time out and I go and sit in it. I just sit Mm. there. Mm. And so, so I'm really interested in, I love deserts too, but I'm not going to just go drive out in the desert and sit there. So are there, are there companies or places that people can go where they can experience the desert, but in a way that they're kind of safe as a tourist? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are many um, lodges um, around the desert, many. Um, There are specific places though, People most probably know Sososfle, which is um, another kind of desert near um, really big dunes um, <clears throat> and dead flay. Dead flay is, I, I think people have seen lots of pictures of that. It's sort of a white soil with dead trees and then these huge orange um, sand mountains around it. And near there are many um, lodges and chalets and luxury camping things that you can you can um, visit. But there are small towns all along where you can go. They're far apart; it takes hours to get to them. But there are so many of them, and they offer different kinds of things. So some of them are very basic, and if you like camping, just camping. You're, well, you know that happens. There are luxury camps. There are proper Rondavals, which is the round um, structured buildings that people can stay in. And Rondavals are sort of more a native type of building with straw um, roofs and stuff. Um, So there are those kinds of things. There's enormous amounts to do as well. I mean, people think of the desert as just this, as I said, empty, nothing happens, whatever. It's not true. Um, In fact, in Dead Flay, um, it's been used in a lot of movies, a lot of films. And I think the last one was Mad Max or something. And people, although it, it brought in a lot of money to the country, people freaked out because they were thinking, you know, they were destroying the <laughs> ecosystem <laughs> of the desert kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so all along the desert and even in the Kalahari Desert, there are little lodges here and there. And the lodge in Under a Namibian Sky, which is the main character of the series actually is a, a real lodge situated in the Kalahari Desert. Oh, wow. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. yes. That's cool. Uh, so the other thing you mentioned, you'd have, you briefly mentioned the skeleton coast. And I mean, yes. just, just the phrase just brings up in your mind all these <laughs> crazy things. But um, just explain, like, why is it called the skeleton coast and what is, what is there? Okay, the Skeleton Coast is an amazing place. Um, the reason it's called the Skeleton Coast is because it's it's very turbulent, the seas there, and there's a lot of fog. I mean, the, 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 the whole, that whole area, it stretches from the north of the country right down to almost near Wallfish Bay. It's, it's a really long stretch of the coast. And it's usually, not always, but mostly, um, enveloped in this thick fog. And with the turbulent seas, I think that's why a lot of boats 
used to or ships used to um, shipwreck on on the beach there. And so you can still see those shipwrecks from long, long time ago. Some of them are sort of partially buried under the sand and they're old, really old. You can also see whales, you know, when whales have beached, you can still see the bones and everything. So it's like a really eerie, weird place. And what makes it even weirder is if you run on the sand, it roars. It roars. It's the only place where it, it releases um, air between the sand um, grains. Grains, yeah. And it roars. It's the most bizarre sound you can ever imagine. <laughs> but as you grow more north um, into the skeleton coast, right to the top of the country, to me, that's the sort of almost the last wilderness still in the world because there's nothing nothing absolutely nothing and it's weird because the local people used to call that whole area sort of um the land that god made in anger because it is such a austere and inhospitable place and yet people love going there it's also very strange if you walk inwards a little bit away from the sand from the the sea and the beach you find the weirdest rock formations. They like, I always think, you know what they remind me of is like um, a sort of weird, scary fairy tale castles. They are bizarre. Um, and if you're there on your own or just with a few people, it, it's very spooky. Now, some people love all that. <laughs> Some people run away. <laughs> I think it sounds great. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love it personally. That's why I love it so much. But it wasn't always called the Skeleton Coast. There was a gentleman many years ago. Um, he wrote a book called The Skeleton Coast. Mm. And that's why people started. It, it was a, became very popular. It talked about a true, true events of this ship that um, shipwrecked there. And, you know, obviously people... Um, try to rescue the people who survived and it's sort of stuck in people's minds and I think it, the reason it's stuck is because it's true when you go there it absolutely is the skeleton coast mm. not just because of the skeletons but also these weird rock formations and weird sort of I don't know it's really strange to explain how it looks to me as I said very weird scary fairy castles <laughs> well i just i think the uh yeah the name the skeleton case always brings up and i in my head and i'll put some in the show notes some pictures of the of the shipwrecks and things yes. but i did i did want to ask you because you mentioned the german colony and since we're oh. talking about kind of darker events um <laughs> you know namibia was yeah. was this german colony in the 19th yeah. century and you know, there were some difficult things that happened, as has happened in many countries under colonialism. Um, so how does that period impact the country today in terms of uh, any places that remain um, or any attitudes, I guess, to Europeans? Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, it's interesting because like I said earlier, when we talked briefly about language, um, German was one of the official languages many years ago. And, I, and weirdly, it still kind of is. And there are still people who speak language, uh, German as their home language. Um, and so German, the German influence on the country hasn't really abated 
it's still there, very much so. So if you go to some of the, t uh, well, in Windhoek, you can see it for sure. There's a lot of sort of German architecture still in the buildings. Although, I mean, the city is growing, it's becoming more modern. And so as as buildings are being built, it's, it's no longer in that style. Um, but if you go down to, for example, Swakopmund, which a lot of people go, especially if they want to access um, the Skeleton Coast, because you can fly with a little plane across the Skeleton Coast from there. Um, there's a lot of German influence there. So there's a lot of German architecture, um, a lot of food, restaurants is still very, very German. And a lot of people speak German there still. Mm. Um, no other language, German. Um, Luderitz, which is a little bit further south, um, is a German town, and and that is a is a very has a dark dark history. Behind Ludwitz was the first diamond field, uh, a, a town that was sort of developed. It was it's called Kolmanskop. It's now a ghost town because people left, and I think people have probably they've had lots of um, TV documentaries about it and the sand is sort of sweeping into the houses and stuff but that was very german type architecture luderitz itself is very german very very german even today and then a little bit further south there's another little town called aus now there's a lot of german words still in the language a lot of german names still um in the uh, the towns what the towns are called german words um but it's weird because in schools, it's almost like they're trying to eradicate that part of history. And yet such terrible things happened because near Ludritz was an island called Shark Island. It's still there, but it's now a peninsula. And that was where um, a really bad concentration camp was situated. I mean, even the guards, the German guards used to call it the death camp because people just never came out of it um, if they were sentenced there. And so it's a very dark place. And if you go there, and a lot of people want to experience, you know, all these weird things that happened, of course, and we mustn't forget it, mm. um, then it's it's sort of, it's it's got a very weird atmosphere. You you feel it when you're there. It's it's like the rocks talk to you, the you know, kind of thing. But here's the thing about the architecture. I'm just quickly telling you this. Um, it's, it's Victorian. It's not modern German. And so is the language. It's not modern German. So if you speak Namibian German and you go to Germany, they'll laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're really old-fashioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but here's the thing. I think because it's not really being taught as history in schools, people are trying to forget it and a lot of the youth don't know this history. Mm. And so their attitudes towards um, German, there's a lot of Germans still living in, in Namibia and many of them still go on holiday. And I think it's partly the reason it's quite an expensive country, can be an mm. expensive country to visit, is because it's kind of still attached to the Deutsche Mark. It's not, their economy is not, it's more connected to South African. But I think because of the German connection, it's still there. And, and funnily enough, the only direct flight from Europe to Windhoek is from Frankfurt. 
Oh, interesting. That's bizarre, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the people there, I mean, they don't seem to hold any grudges. Um, they certainly in, are very open and inviting. It's a very warm country, not just hot in terms of temperature. <laughs> um, the people are warm, warm and friendly and helpful. And I think it's because there are not very many there. <laughs> when they see someone, they go, oh, hi, you're another human being. <laughs> well, well um, just on that, on the, so you mentioned uh, some of the uh, Bush people um, mm. and obviously there's the white European Namibians. So mm. what what's the sort of um, percentage of, racial mix because obviously those concentration camps I read there were you know thousands of native Mm. people were were killed in that period yeah there was nearly um well two tribes nearly completely wiped off the face of the earth nearly because there are some left but very Mm. few very few and they have never really I don't think recovered as much um yeah that's an interesting question because uh, Namibia thrives on tourism, so you often find a lot more Europeans on holiday there um, and some crazy guys who bike across the country. Crazy, but anyway. Um, But people who live there, I think the the European white population is in the minority, clearly, because, um, as I said, there are so many other tribes. But they don't necessarily live in the towns or the cities. A lot of them live in Vintuk, yes, but most of them have, they're nomadic. Many of them are still nomadic. And so they live this, this weird life where they pack up their things and move on and pack up their things and move on. So, um, yeah, it's, I don't know if that answers it's def- Yeah, it's question. definitely still a, a mix, I guess. That's what it's I'm- definitely a mix, yeah. Yeah. yeah so um so food and drink are always an important part <laughs> of travel. So uh what what type of food and uh and what should we be drinking when we're in Namibia? Oh beer. Namibian beer. <laughs> definitely without question. <laughs> Is that like a lager type beer or an ale? No, it's lager. It's a lager type beer, but they brew it there. And it's amazing. I'm, I'm not really um, an alcohol drinker type person, but whenever I go there, beer, it has to be. It's the most amazing taste. It's wonderful. Um, and, and here's the thing. We don't really have pubs like we have in England there. Um, people entertain a lot more. They do um, at their homes. So parties happen all the time and people have no concept of distance because it's so the country is so vast so they they think nothing of driving four hours to go to a party and then four hours home again that's nothing that's just going to a party right um so food meat eaters the namibians are meat eaters okay so i'm sorry for the vegans and the vegetarians out there all all the other namibians eat meat and they eat all kinds of things so snakes insects (laughs) insects <laughs> um could do game basically mm. um and because the weather is always amazing usually um although some of the, th- uh, the thunderstorms are amazing they, they sort of have those many many pointed thunder you know, lightning, lightning things yeah. yes brilliant but um <clears throat> that doesn't happen very often mostly we have barbecues we call them braai so everybody has a braai and you have them 
for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically, it's meat. It's all meat based, um, which is hilarious to me now because I can't believe that I used to do that. <laughs> it's like what? Um, they have salady type things with it, but it's really most people just go, yeah, right, whatever. Um, and then the other thing that they usually eat with it, and this is going to sound even more bizarre to people who've never been there, it's something called pup. Now, to us normal people, it's like porridge and you have it for breakfast. They don't. So it's a kind of maize meal thing that you mix with water and you boil it and put some salt in it. And they have that with their meat. Further inland, um, people have what they call poikikos. It's like a little pot and they put everything in. It's like a stew, I mm. guess. But pop goes with the stew. <laughs> and then on the coast, there's obviously mostly seafood. Mm, yeah. It's funny because I went to school in Malawi uh, for oh, a bit wow. and I remember poiki pot. I remember poiki ah, pot. And I think the equivalent was called unsima, which was a like a maize uh, yes. porridgey thing. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's, oh. I think these kind of staple vegetable yes. things with stew, yeah. um, they kind of have that in every culture, right? Yeah. Just a different name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So um, I did want to ask, you know, sort of coming back to what you said at the beginning, like, I think I've stopped traveling. So you're African, Namibian, but you live in London. So yes. what is home to you? And, you know, what do you miss of Africa? But now you've made a home in London, you know, what are you yeah. missing? Oh, that's a, a, a very good question. And one that I've been thinking, I've, people ask me this often. So I do think about it quite a bit. Um, it's difficult because actually I see myself as a citizen of the world. I'm based in London, yes. And my heart will always belong in Africa. And since you went to school in Malawi, you probably know this. Africa is a possessive mistress. Once she has you in her grip, she will hold you forever. You can't really escape her. She will always pull you back. Um, but I've experienced amazing places around the world. And to me, the earth is where I feel I belong. I, you know, I was talking about Mars earlier on, and I don't think I'll ever go there, even <laughs> if I could. <laughs> It's too scary. It's too far away. <laughs> I'd rather stay here. But um, what do I miss? Well, the culture, obviously, is very, very different. Um, I've been away from it, living in other countries for long enough to know that I, I'll probably never be able to understand their sense of humor anymore, you know, because when we move away from the place that you called home once upon once upon a time, and you embrace another culture, you only understand that you've moved away and become a stranger when they tell you jokes and you don't get it any longer. And that happened to me about five years ago. I went there and people were telling jokes and I thought, okay, they're all laughing. This is meant to be funny. And I can't understand why. Mm. That was very sad to me. It freaked me out. But so those are the things I miss. I miss my family, obviously. I, I'm in touch with them all the time, but not physically. I mean, they're not in my physical presence. So I do mm. miss that. I miss the desert. I miss the desert. I miss the silence, the open spaces, 
the clean air, the able to just relax and breathe. It's a it's a different way of living. It's slower than here. There's hardly any stress unless you put some on yourself, which let's face it, if you're self-employed, you do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I think that's it. And and although I don't like the heat. I miss the sun, the relentless sun, and I miss the wildlife. I miss the the sounds. You know, people sometimes ask me, what do I feel is the sound of Africa? And I have to say, it is for me the fish eagle, the cry of the fish eagle. That, to me, is the sound of Africa. And I recently discovered that it is now the official bird of Namibia so they must feel the same way as I do I didn't know this <laughs> until about three months ago someone told me I was like oh oh well there you are <laughs> oh that's lovely well and yeah. then I was also going to ask about um because obviously you travel home to Namibia or you travel back to Namibia but yeah. um your books you also write about other places um for your books so how, what does travel mean for you and your writing how does how, and do you travel for inspiration I used to. Yes, I used to. One of the places I used to, I, 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 I wanted to travel to when I got an opportunity to do so was New Orleans because I'm a complete major fan of Anne Rice and her books. So <laughs> I've done a show on New Orleans. <laughs> oh, 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 God. I have to look. I have to check it out. I love New Orleans with a passion and I've always wanted to go. And then I got this opportunity to go and I was, oh, I was so excited. So before I left, I actually emailed her. I found her website and I emailed her. I thought, oh, she's probably going to not even see this. But I emailed her and I said, thank you so much for take, you know, being courageous enough to get Lestat out there because I love her character, Lestat. Mm. And I know that she tried really hard to get it out there and she succeeded. And she, to my amazement and very excitement, she responded. And so we had this conversation for a, for a few but probably about half an hour, emails going back and forth. And then I blew it all. <laughs> my last email went, oh, my God, I'm such a fangirl. And she stopped. She stopped. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's too far. <laughs> a step too far. Oh, no, that, that's fantastic. Well, talk, talking of, uh, oh, dear. Talking but, of uh, books, um, apart yeah. from obviously uh, we've got your, your own book, Under a Namibian Sky, but give uh-huh. us, um, you know, a couple of other books that are about Namibia or set in Namibia or Africa that you would recommend. Sure. Um, I'll just quickly say, yes, Under a Namibian Sky is set in Namibia. Um, and then there's like a little novella that's a follow up on that one because my readers asked for it. And that's not set in Namibia, it's set in Italy. But I am writing the next one right now. It's called Heat in the Desert. Mm. And, you know, we talked earlier on about Shark Island a little bit. I'll just say this. Um, I'm not writing about Shark Island in this book, but the main character has to navigate his life as a result um, of what his forefathers did mm. in Shark Island. So it's it's sort of kind of like that. But anyway, so I'm just writing that. So yes, so to come back to your question, there I've got uh, several books here that I love reading and rereading. They're a bit older, but I think you can still get hold of them. And most of them, I think, are only available in hardback. So there's one that's it's called The Healing Land, A Kalahari Journey. 
and it's by Rupert Isaacson. It's the story of the Bushmen and how they're navigating their ancient traditions in our modern world. It's a brilliant book. Um, and one of my favorites, and people probably know this book really well, is A Walk with a White Bushman by Lawrence van der Post. It is inspiring, it's profound, and I can't recommend it highly enough if you've not read it. Read it. And then this book, probably everybody knows, but it's one of my favorites. It's The Long Walk to Freedom. It's Nelson Mandela's riveting memoir. And um, it was interesting because while I lived in Hong Kong, I met one of his daughters there. And I rem I'll never forget this night. We spent the entire night until the sun came up talking about his life, this book, and her experience of him as a father. It was an incredible conversation, and I'll always be grateful for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then here's the book that I'm not sure you can still get this. I have a copy, but I don't know if people can still get this. It's, it's called The Skeleton Coast by John Henry Marsh. And like I said, it's, it's a true adventure about a ship that um, ran aground on the Skeleton Coast. And it's because of that book that we now call it The Skeleton Coast. Um, and then there's another older but an amazing book by Michael Britton, and it's called Discover Namibia. And the reason I recommend this, and I, I think you can still get this, but again, I think it's only in, paper, in the hardback. It has the most beautiful pictures in it, and it shows you how unchanging Namibia really is. It's an ancient land, and this book takes you almost as a tourist through the entire country. Of course, it doesn't have all the modern things in it. There's no eco, you know, sporty type things in it. But there are still parts of Namibia where you, you can't get mobile phone reception. <laughs> there are still parts of England like that. <laughs> well, yeah, true. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, I think this book is just, it's wonderful because it shows you not just it's, it's beautifully written, but the pictures is mm. stunning and he describes it so well. And you do feel like you, you are traveling without moving when you read that, you know, it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, those are great. And uh, I'm definitely going to check some of those out. So yeah. where can people find you and your books online? Oh, thank you. Well, my website is angelinakalahari.com. Um, so people ask me about my name. I'll just quickly tell mm. you, Akalahari. People go, oh, well, um, it was because I was very homesick while I was singing, traveling all over the world, and I got really homesick. So I changed my name by deed poll <laughs> because I was born in the Kalahari Desert. And I thought, well, if I have it as my name, then I'll feel a bit more together. And it helped, I have to say. So it's been my name for a long, long time. So AngelinaKalahari.com is my website and I'm Angelina Kalahari everywhere except on Twitter which I think there weren't it was too long the name was too long <laughs> so it's Angelina Kalahari <laughs> at Twitter <laughs> and my books mo well the, the um the romance series you can find on Amazon and yes, there are other romance books on Amazon as well. Um, but the nonfiction books are wide. So 
anywhere you want to, you can find them. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Angelina. That was great. Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to chat about my beloved Namibia. Thank you so much, Joanne. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.